Father, we pray that the eyes and ears of our understanding would be opened wider this morning, that we might dare to dream what it might sound like when the wedding bells ring for the marriage supper of the Lamb, when the body of Christ, Father, enters into that glorious day when we have perfect fellowship with you. No spots, no blemishes, nothing but the perfection that Jesus died to purchase, manifestly evident in everyone gathered at that table. And there you are, our Lord and Savior, our bridegroom at the head, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father, evident, manifest, there for us to behold in all your redemptive and reigning and sovereign, beautiful glory. And the light emanates from your throne and there is no shadow. Lord, and for us, there is no darkness anymore and no shadow of turning. Father, for us, that will represent the climax, Father, of what our faith believes as we step forward, maybe into a valley of another shadow of death, maybe through another trial, knowing that the perfect rest that you died to purchase will be so shortly, God. Upon your soon return or when you call us home, God, that will be an incredible wedding day indeed. Lord, we thank you for pictures of this that build our faith in the meantime. We give you glory for Phil and Brenna's wedding last night. A godly couple united together in matrimony, Lord. A testimony to your glory before witnesses. Some of us were there yesterday and we saw the glory of the Lord evident in their confession and their vows one to another. And it reminds us of the picture in your word of your church. Lord, us dependent on our bridegroom, Father. For our security, our hope, our provision, our identity. Lord, I pray that you would equip that marriage to continue to be a testimony and that you would equip this church, your bride, to do the same. Father, that we might evidence the love of Christ to those around by acting like a bride who's in love with her groom, who would be loath to disappoint and who is always conscious of that relationship, striving to remain even more faithful, which he which with each passing day, Lord, conscious of the fact that there was a vow, a serious one. But not just the sobriety of that vow, but also the promise of joy that is all contained, Lord, in the relationship that you have with us, Father, eclipses any other relationship on this earth. But because of what you died to ordain, Lord, it defines and provides identity, a future, a hope, and guidelines and boundaries for everything else that we do. May we find our hope, Lord, our direction, our purpose, Lord, in the fact that you died to redeem a bride. Father, we're proud to be your bride. Lord, I pray that we would learn more about our bridegroom today as we study your word. Father, and as we go over the promises once again, the principles and commandments that you ordain for us to live as we ought, Lord, for us to become who we are as our faith seeks understanding. I pray, Lord, that you would bless that search beyond what we've even dared to ask thus far with a deeper revelation of your glory. And may we bear that, Lord Jesus, as we leave this place so that others may see a reflection of Christ in us. Lord, not as testimony to anything that we've done, only the cross, only the resurrection, and only the Lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for this morning that you planned. And thank you, Jesus, that your blood purchased for us, even grace for today. And Spirit, we thank you that you've applied these things to our heart and we trust you will continue to do so. In your name we pray, O oh God. Humbled at the opportunity to share another day, another morning with you and His Word and celebrating our redemption together. This morning will bring us back once again to the Old Testament in the great book of poetry that is the Psalms in our Psalm a Month series. We're in Psalm chapter 5. We'll try to cover as an overview the entire Psalm this morning and I'm afraid I've bit off a little bit more than I can chew. But with the Lord's help, I'll do my best. And if nothing else, whet your appetite for further study. I've labeled this message for you this morning, War of Words. 
a clash of confession, if you will, a dichotomy between ideals, that of the enemies of God and that of God's redeemed people. The word of God versus the word of the enemy, a war of words. This seems to be a theme and really govern the way Psalm 5 is laid out. And as we get a little further along in the message, if you have a copy of the notes that Kari printed out for you today, you'll find at the bottom of the page, the second half of the page, two columns. And on one side, on the left side, is a column labeled God's allies who trust His word. And on the other side, right-hand column, is a label God's enemies who trust man's wisdom. And underneath those two headings, it seems that there's a lot of things you could see by way of distinction in Psalm chapter 5 that would fall under either those who are allied with God's purposes, who love and trust His word, or those who fall outside His favor, who remain enemies to Him and trust instead man's wisdom. David is very bold and emphatic as he makes associations in this psalm. So he'll talk about security and hope and joy, for instance, for those who are allies with God, and he'll associate with that with, or that with something in particular. So that will basically form the structure of the message a little later, but before we get to that, I'd like to give you some context and a preface. This psalm is another example, like the first four that we've gone through so far, of a man in distress, under a lot of pressure, being pursued by enemies, crying out to God. This was really David's life story. David, before he became king, I mean, a a man shows up at your door one day, imagine yourself in David's shoes. We think of David as this great giant slayer, right? This hero of the faith. When we're young and growing up, we think of David and, you know, the mighty exploits he did when he slayed Goliath. And we think of those high points. We think of the mountaintops. And he is a hero to us, and in many ways, rightly so, as the work of God is evident in the testimony of Israel's greatest king. But we also see a very intimate side of David that betrays a lot of weakness as we read through his own account of his life, his prayers that really cry out many times in desperation to the Lord because of his circumstances. We find upon further study a man really acquainted with the same struggles and griefs, and perhaps in some ways to greater degree that you and I do. And this psalm probably comes from one of those times. Prior to his anointing as king, or I, I should say prior to him assuming the throne, David spent a large part of his time as a fugitive. He was pursued by the authority by the king of that day, Saul. And he was on the run all the time, sometimes taking refuge even in pagan nations. The neighboring Philistines provided a home for him to feel a little bit safe anyway. But then he would find himself in a quandary again as the king wanted him to march against God's people and praying to God, what should I do here? I'm caught between a rock and a hard place. God somehow provides a way of escape, only to be under pressure again. There he is, with a bounty on his head, pursued by Saul's armies. David sneaks up into the camp of Saul one night, cuts a piece of his robe off, hoping to demonstrate that he could have killed the man that was chasing him, but failed to do so because he honors God's covenants and his purposes and his appointed king and God's timing hoping that the king would see that, respect it, and then stop his pursuit. Well, he did see it and respect it and stop his pursuit for maybe a week. But then the enemy that oppressed Saul motivated him once again to chase David across the countryside, place a big you know, price tag on his head for any of Saul's men. That, and consequently, this is David's life as a fugitive before he became king. And you might think David could breathe easy after he assumed the throne of Israel. Now he's in the place of being in charge. He has his own army, can defend himself. But David was a man of war. His dream was to build a house for God, but he was never able to settle down and actually do it. That was a calling for his son, for his seed. But David's calling as he lived his life was continual adversity. If he wasn't being chased, he was chasing. If he ever stayed home, got lazy as to his duty and his call, he got himself in trouble. Adversity of a different kind, temptation worldly devices and relationships that were ungodly. So this was David's life. Now you would think with that context that David would have no time to think of anything except self-preservation. And when he was in prayer, crying out before the Lord, bearing his soul before God that all he could probably muster to do at any given time when he was under such stress is to say, help me, Lord. I'm surrounded by enemies on every side. And that is indeed true. And many of the Psalms say as much. 
But I'd like to draw your attention to a distinctive in Psalm chapter 5. Although David is trying out for salvation from his enemies, although he is under distress, he chooses to highlight aspects of the enemy that you may not imagine. It troubles him that the words of the enemy of the enemy are contrary to the word of God. As I was studying this psalm, it seemed like this principle is one worth writing down for myself because this is something I need to hear. In my own struggles and adversity, it's easy to think of self-preservation. It's hard to defend God's glory when you're under stress. And maybe the thought never even occurs to us, but it did occur to David. And this is one of the things I admired David for. David cared more about what his enemies said falsely of his God than he did his own personal adversity, as evidenced in this psalm. David cared more that God's name was belittled, abused, that he was taken lightly, that he was mocked by those of his enemies. He cared more about that in this psalm than he did his own self-preservation or even the injustice of the bounty on his head. He says in previous psalms that woe to those essentially who betray and oppose God's anointed. And he was God's anointed for one specific purpose, to reflect God's will and his call and his lordship to Israel by the office of king and to hopefully lead them in his ways. And he was God's anointed. And there were many who opposed his authority, many who opposed his kingship and his anointing, maybe even those in his own household who opposed it. Yet it seemed to trouble David more than the fact that people were personally opposed to him, that people were personally in a position of enmity with God. This psalm doesn't merely evidence the emotional reaction of the stress of war, but it contains this surprising distinctive. The nature of the enemy's opposition in psalm focuses almost entirely on what the enemy says. A few examples for you. In, in Psalm, again, chapter 5, verse 4, there's a transition point from David's cry and his prayer. And he says this of the Lord in contrast with his enemies. He says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. And then verse 5, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. There's two examples that don't directly deal with words in there as adjectives to describe the wicked. One is the boastful who stand before you who hate evildoers. The one is evildoers and the, the other one is the bloodthirsty. But it seems that these are adjectives just to emphasize how wrong it is, how unconscionable it is to stand against by your words and confession the truth and the glory of God. The boastful are wicked. Those who are self-aggrandizing, who promote themselves, who are self-confident, who only talk about their own glory, and that takes precedent, that trumps the evidence of the glory of the Lord and their duty and call to reflect that glory by being submissive to His Lordship and authority. Those boastful who stand before the Lord, it doesn't matter if that takes any other form than the condition of their heart, they remain evildoers until they submit and until they repent. Likewise, God destroys those who speak lies. Any truth claims that are aside from those that God has established by inarguable principle in His Word that are there for us to glean an understanding in these Infallible pages, any, any who would disagree with them and propose another standard or another truth or persuade others to follow them, though they don't follow Christ, they are as bad as the bloodthirsty. The bloodthirsty and deceitful man God includes in his hatred through the words of David, back to back, both a liar and one who has a bloodlust. Could we learn from this text that those who do not stand for the truth of God's word are as wicked as a serial killer? That's a convicting thought and a very heavy one to consider. 
Thank God for His grace that is able to redeem a sinner so lost as we were. If we ever had a doubt on our mind before we came to Christ that He was King of kings and Lord of lords. Because truly we are counted among those who are worthy of hell because we have stood against His authority and lordship. These were those who David prayed would be destroyed. Serious. It's a serious prayer here. He's praying that judgment would come in verse 7, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, and we see the distinction again, the contrast, will enter your house and bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. And this is the contrasting language of one who is submissive to the Lord. Instead of boldly proclaiming and advertising himself, he bows down to God's holy temple. Holy temple as a representation of God's means of making reconciliation between himself and sinful man. In those days, it was the tabernacle, soon to be the temple, as a picture of who Christ would be for us. For you and I, when we read this text, we can just assume substitute Christ for house. When we enter into Christ, and when Christ enters into us, we bow down towards Him, towards the cross, towards His redemptive work in the fear of Him. And David asked that the Lord would lead him in His righteousness, because, his enemy, because of his enemies, and make his way, the Lord's way, straight before him. And then again in verse 9, more words, more evidence of evil by what is spoken, by what is believed in the hearts of God's enemies, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction, their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsel. Because of the abundance of their, their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. We're starting to get a picture of the layout of this song. And as you can see, maybe you're surprised, like I am, that David focused so heavy on the words of his enemies and not the actual swords that were at his throat. And not just metaphorically, he was pursued. And uh, there were those who came and burned his village down. There were those who came and ransacked their homes. They took away women and children in Ziklag when he was gone on a campaign. He had to chase them down. They had to get their family back. There was all of this opportunity for David to be extremely upset and to have all his energy directed towards those that most directly affected his personal well-being. It's just amazing that he would take the time to write this song and find himself most angry against the fact that they stood in opposition to God's authority than the fact that they stood in opposition to him personally. David cared more about what his enemies said falsely of his God than he did the unjust bounty on his own head and his own personal adversity. Now, we, might, we always ask ourselves the question, at least I try to in preaching, how does a song like this relate and apply to our world today? And as we dig deeper, it might be as clear to you as it was to me that a song like this is like a trumpet blast that cuts through the cacophony of culture. A culture that is steeped with lies. A culture that is steeped with every example in many ways in this psalm. They flatter with their mouths. They fall by way of their own counsels. They place their trust in their own truth, not God's. They're bloodthirsty. They're deceitful. If we look at the culture around us, we find a psalm like this really providing clarity in an age where a relativistic self-profession is endorsed. That truth is really something self-contained and self-described and defined for one's own self and unaccountable to anyone else and unaccountable to God. Oftentimes, as we see the ideals of our culture played out before us, there's a flippant, a flippant treatment of the sacred, both in practice and in conversation. God has ordained certain things as holy. His covenants have distinct and profound consequences, as well as enduring and eternal blessings. But those covenants, those commandments, those principles are often taken lightly. The social capital that's been earned by a largely godly society in years past has now been spent like a prodigal son, willing to throw away his spiritual inheritance to trade his birthright for one bowl of porridge, and judgment is soon incoming lest we repent. Because against this measure of truth, certainly we find ourselves guilty in so many areas in the world around us. 
Oftentimes, as we embrace culture as a Christian, we find there's an emphasis on experience over creed. People are more interested in what they feel than what is declared truth. There's a bigger emphasis on personality over doctrine, even in pulpits, even in men that we trust who preach and say certain things. A lot of times we're attracted to the style and less about the truth. There's an ideological tolerance. All ideas are equally valid, they tell us. There's a disproportionate value placed on personal opinion. There's a systematic undermining of absolutes. And I just think of the news lately where an individual, our society, especially you know, right now, probably the biggest felt need in America generally is this economic depression or recession that we hear about or this lagging recovery. And in such times, we're more likely to hear a quote by someone like Warren Buffett, you know, a tycoon who's earned a lot of money than we are a quote from the Word of God, especially from news organizations and people that propose to lead us who assume that they have a better way. But in such a culture, in such a surround, that in, in these type of surroundings, we need to ask ourselves a question. Are we being led by blind people? Are we being led by those who are bloodthirsty, evildoers, as evidenced by their lies, by their distortions, by their flattery, by the guilt that they bear, by, their failure of their, by the failure of their counsels? It seems that there needs to be a lot of clarity brought to bear in this present day. And it's easy to be lulled to sleep by anything that would pretend to have the answer. But there is only one truth, and it's found in God's Word. It's important for us to be steeped in this book. So, so much so that our reaction time is quick to discern when there is an error in the world around us. These days, law is very important to man, but more as a tool of power than evidence of God's supreme authority. You see, a lot of times people take faith in the precedent that courts set with no fear that there's a judgment seat of Christ that we will all stand before one day. So these are just a few examples of how the fifth psalm is so relevant for today and as applicable as ever. And if we're in the heart of David and if our mind is conformed to the word of God, we may find ourselves in anguish and prayer like he did suddenly caring more that God's name is besmirched in the world around us than the fact that our livelihood may be threatened or that we are going through some personal adversity. As I mentioned to you before, this verse 4 signals a change in the distinctions. David starts out using his own words to cry out to the Lord, and then he talks about the words of those who do not trust in him. And at this point, I'd like to work through the psalm. So if you have your notes with you and want to follow... I'm going to hopefully give you a list of associations for David when he begins describing his position and crying out before the Lord and asking for help. It's underneath the heading of one of God's allies who trusts in His Word. So what does a cry from the heart of one of God's allies sound like? Well, in verse 1 we read, From David's mouth, in his time of distress, to his God, Give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my groaning. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. These are the words of one who is confessing that he needs God to intervene. He is weak and ill-equipped to affect his own situation and dependent on his sovereign Lord. This is the heart of David's cries. He sings again in verse 2. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. David is making associations here. In verses 1 and 2, maybe the first one would be this, the ear or the attention of heaven. David associates with the personal affirmation of God's sovereignty. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. He's crying out. Answer my prayer. I need help. And this is the spirit of this prayer. It's not wrong to bring our petitions before the Lord. But it is wrong to bring them, I believe, without this qualifier in verse 2. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. David makes an association with effective prayer to that of a personal affirmation of God's power to answer it. He thinks it's a worthy cause only because he has a God who's powerful to answer. Prayer isn't David's last resort. It isn't one thing added to a list of any number 
of helps along the way. It is His first priority. We see that in verse 3. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. When I read morning, I hear the poetic language of the first fruits of our day. The dawning of a new day, the sun rises by God's grace. What's the best way to spend those moments? With the priority of bringing our appeal before the Lord and acknowledging His Lordship. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. David makes an association. Effective and meaningful prayer is associated with an exclusive appeal to God. Only Him and also answered prayer and priorities. David makes a connection, an association between an answered prayer and making God the first place you turn to and making Him the priority of appeal. Again in verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice before you and watch. I'll list these again, but maybe here's a fourth association. Faith and sacrifice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. It's like a man who lights a fuse and stands there and he knows in a matter of seconds there will be an explosion. He has faith when he sees the sparkling tip of that wick that that will lead to a massive effect. Faith for the believer is like that and prayer is like the spark. If you enter into prayer in faith, knowing that a sacrifice has been made for the answer to be available to you, you know and trust that your sovereign Lord, through the sacrifice of His Son, will intervene in His due course according to His perfect will, and you have nothing to fear. A great thing to do in the morning. The connection, the association David makes in his confession of the word of the Lord as opposed to the word of the enemy is to not let it be lost in his prayer life, the connection between faith and sacrifice. Without the sacrifice for his sins, he would have no hope of seeing tomorrow. What is answered prayer if you go to hell? It is nothing. What is living to see another day if there is no redemption for your souls? For us to gain the world and lose that soul is vanity. These are the connections that David makes. I'll read them to you again. Four, first of all, under God's allies who trust His word. Number one, the attention of heaven is associated with the personal affirmation of God's sovereignty. Number two, effective and meaningful prayer is associated with an, an exclusive appeal to God. To you do I pray. Number three, there's a connection between answered prayer and priorities. Making God the first fruits of our time, our appeal, and our day. And number four, there's a connection between faith and sacrifice. Those who sit and watch with expectation and hope, do so knowing that the price for their answered prayer has already been paid. Then we get to verse 4, which signals this transition. This psalm has a bifurcating effect. It really sifts wheat and chaff. And this is a constant in Scripture. This is a principle that we see over and over again. When God talks about refinement, He talks about a heat that is turned up. He relates it to a heat that is turned up on a furnace that separates the gold from the dross. When God talks about valuable works, He describes them as the difference between precious jewels that will survive fire and those that will be destroyed as wood, hay, and stubble. When God talks about those who profess the name of Christ, who claim to be associated to Him, He talks about the difference between sheep and wolves. From our perspective and limited understanding, with sometimes poor discernment, we may be fooled. There may be a wolf in sheep's clothing. But from God's eyes, His Word has a separating effect. And it immediately throws in two categories, those allied, who trust, allied with Him who trusts His Word and His enemies who trust man's wisdom, in an instant, that word pierces, cuts through like the sword Hebrews declares it to be, and separates that which is fuzzy to man. And this psalm, Psalm chapter 5, is doing just that. It's, it's separating the wheat from the chaff, like the winnowing fork of Jesus' teaching that John prophesied of in the New Testament. It's burning the tares and saving the wheat, like Jesus himself said of the harvest in the last day. It's, burn, it's turning up the thermostat on the refiner's fire, and dross is rising to the top, but the gold is remaining. And here we see some of that dross, some of that wood, hay, stubble, some of these wolves 
that parades sometimes in sheep's clothing in verse 5 as we read, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. So under the second category, God's enemies who trust man's wisdom, who don't place their faith in the Lord, don't make them their first priority, who don't see the connection between faith and sacrifice. Those who fall outside of the sheepfold, outside of His beloved and the remnant of those who place their trust and faith in Him. It's a whole different situation. There's a connection between boastful and evildoers. Position of the heart, position that you take, the things that you believe are just as bad as if you carried out their logical ends every time you did something. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. There's another association that David makes in verse 6. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So there's a connection, an association between those who are liars and deceitful and the bloodthirsty. As we mentioned before, sin is sin. And in God's eyes, is just as reprehensible. God hates unjust balances. God abhors liars. It says in the book of Proverbs, the wisdom that's given to the young man to steer clear of lying with as much distance as you steer clear of a strange woman and adultery and anything else God hates. In the same list, in the same category, why is God so opposed to someone who might tell a white lie to benefit themselves? Someone who is boastful, who kind of doesn't tell the whole truth about him. Well, that's just it. If God is perfect, if He is sovereign, and if He is Lord, then His chief concern will be in His grace and mercy, in His grace and mercy to trumpet and disperse that glory everywhere. Now, what if there's a sinful, wicked man caught in his discretions and sins who is dead apart from Him, who stands in the way of God's glory? Lest he repent, the most gracious thing that God can do for the benefit of everyone else is to show His glory by judging him by killing him, by stamping him out and sending him to hell. How many sermons have you heard where judgment is preached that clearly and boldly? It's difficult to say those things in this culture. And we have made it so because we believe in lies. We have made it difficult to say those things because our sensibilities are corrupted by the world. But this is the fear of God. We won't understand the fear of God without understanding these realities. And as we continue to read, suddenly we might have this bifurcating effect take place in our own heart where the truth of God's word is seen more clearly and our sin becomes more reprehensible and we throw ourselves more frequently and willing upon the grace of Jesus Christ and find a hatred hatred being nurtured for anything that would despise his glory. We continue to read and now we're on the other column on the left-hand side of the page, God's allies who trust his word in verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. A connection between fellowship and God's presence and his steadfast love. In the Old Testament, you couldn't just walk right into the courts of God. There were only those who under certain circumstances could enter into the holiest place. And you had to meet these conditions in order to be acceptable in God's presence. There was a connection between His steadfast love extended to those who were privileged to enter into His presence and those who then enjoyed that sweet fellowship with Him. This is the picture of our redemption as we see the veil rent at Christ's death. We can enter boldly before the throne room of grace because our sins have been bought, have been paid for by the purchasing blood of Jesus Christ. There is a connection between our fellowship and His presence, our favor, Him smiling on us instead of killing us. There's a connection there between His steadfast love evidenced in the offering of His own Son to die for our sins and our ability to fellowship as we're doing here today with God's favor smiling upon us as His redeemed beloved because of Jesus Christ. Also under the heading God's allies who trust His word. We also see and they they know there's an association between worship and the fear of the Lord. There's not only love to consider as we consider the gospel. There's not only God's unconditional love to bear in mind as we realize 
who we are in position to Him, there is also this sense of awe, reverence, and respect that leads us to an appropriate sense of discernment of our own sin. And this we see in this psalm as well in verse 7, I will bow down toward your temple in the fear of you. A concept we talk about a lot here in the Old Testament, the relationship with the Lord that the saints of old spoke of, they often use this term, the fear of the Lord, which we often associate, I think rightly so, with reverence and respect, taking seriously who God is, taking seriously our sin in light of Him, and then consequently our value of salvation that only He can purchase for us. But these days you're more apt to hear a gospel of unconditional love without realizing there's a God to be feared. It's difficult once again to say these things because of the incorrect assumptions with which we bring to, which we bring to the text of Scripture. But if we let a, a chapter like Psalm 5 erase those preconceived ideas and start over according to God's precepts, we see with other passages of Scripture, like 2 Corinthians 5, that a proper motivator as we enter into His presence is twofold. The fear of Him and the love of Christ. One cannot be appreciated without the other. Verse 8, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. With a highlighter, a great two words to highlighter, the, the repeat of your in there twice. God's proprietary ownership over what is true, over what is right. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. David is seeing an association here between, between direction and adversity or insight under pressure. What do I do next, Lord? What is your will for me? Uh, answers to those kind of prayers. There's a connection between that and God, recognizing God as sole proprietor of righteousness. This... Uh, Theme in the Psalms comes up in one of the most famous, excuse me, famous ones, Psalm 23, verse 4. You necessarily have to turn there. These words will be very familiar to you, I'm sure. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Actually, I skipped verse 3, which I intended to read. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Those two verses, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. There's a connection between recognizing that God alone defines and decrees righteousness and that His rod and His staff, that is, His means to teach it to us, preeminently for us in, in this eon, eschaton, His Word, there's a connection between recognizing that and faith that God will lead you even though you're in a valley where death casts a shadow over your way. Even though you are one who might struggle as David did, that his enemies are all around, they cloud the way, he doesn't know how to get out of this predicament he's in, but he knows that because God owns the exclusive rights to righteousness and he alone has perfect wisdom and knowledge of the future, and His way is to be trusted and is always straight. In spite of the challenges that He feels, the Lord who owns righteousness and owns the way, the truth, and the life will lead Him even in the valley of the shadow of death. And at this point, as the psalm continues to draw distinctions, we're now in the other category in verse 9. There's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. They make them, bear their, make them bear their own guilt, O Lord. Let them fall by their own counsel. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. And in this section of Scripture, I'm reminded of original sin, both its promises and the levied judgments. In original sin, the lie of Satan was that you could be like God. You'd be able to discern for yourself right and wrong. You'd be able to have a proprietary claim to righteousness. You would no longer have to trust 
His sovereign, revealed, infallible word, well, you would have an own, your own intrinsic sense that would effectively make you God. You'd be just like Him. You wouldn't need to trust an outside power, transcendent above creation, to act on your understanding and influence you for you to affirm, submit, follow as your guide. No, you would become your own shining light. Enlightenment would be a reality. It would be a self-contained hero of your own destiny. You'd be captain of your own soul. Man would become the measure of all things. And God would be sort of a footnote on history. I don't care what the majority tells you today, even if it's governed by the prophecies of one as wicked as Nietzsche, who said, God is dead. What was Nietzsche saying? What was this postmodern philosopher prophesying? He was saying that there will come a time in society, specifically as I interpreted Western culture, where acknowledging a sovereign God independent of man himself, something apart from his reasoning, would become a funny little footnote. Those are you know, cultish collections of small individuals who have a need for a crutch and a firm of faith might still believe as much, but largely the values, the direction, the affirmation of society will fall under the heading of man's reasoning, will fall under the heading in our second category, those who trust man's wisdom. What end does God prophesy for those who propose this bold new way? It doesn't look good for us, nor our society, should we continue with these kind of ideals. If we have no truth, there is an association with a truthlessness to self-destruction. Not affirming truth as a society, a multicultural society, a society who says there's no absolutes, their end is suicide. Though we begin to see the framework, the structure, the foundations of what God has ordained man to order his affairs erode. There will be an all-out assault against the family. Roles will be reversed. Children will be rebellious. There won't be those who follow God's Ten Commandments in the majority anymore. But adolescence will be defined as just a time to go out and pursue your own ends, to find yourself in rebellion. Parents will be marginalized. Old people will be neglected. Boomers will retire, won't see themselves and their call to be a wise influence in the next society. You lose a generation call, even in your morals, in your ideals, in your legislation, your proposals for the future. And pretty soon, legislation itself from the highest echelons of government will have no, no more than perhaps a five-year vision of the future. And this is where we find ourselves today, committing societal suicide because truth is no longer confessed in our mouths. It's quarantined from the public square Therefore, by any statistical measure, the morals of our society are in a decline and a decay only to be rescued by a confession of our sin and by the church raising up once again the standard of God's word of truth and righteousness and much of the blame is laid at the foot of his people. And this is what troubles me as I step into the pulpit that I would be bold enough to declare and that as God gives me strength to do so, that it would be reflective of God moving on numbers of individuals who will one day stand before kings and people in authority and say there's a higher law than what you decreed to answer to. There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. David draws a connection between flattery and death, but not just death, infectious death and the plague. Those who flatter themselves, they pat each other in the back, they make each other feel better. They say, hey man, self-esteem, believe in yourself. You have everything inside of you intrinsically for good and goodness and self-potential and self-actualization and all that. People who do that type of thing, people who are editors of gossip magazines, people who promote humanity without the qualifier of his relationship and sin before a holy God, they flatter with their tongues. And it's dangerous. It's death. It's the stench of an open grave. And we all know what an open grave will do. We cover, our body, we cover bodies and carry on with dirt so that the infections and the things that thrive on that decaying matter don't become a problem to everyone else. But if bodies are strewn in the streets and infection runs rampant spiritually, we'll be like the Black Plague, like moments in history where the population curve actually went the opposite direction and in the spirit realm, as long as we embrace flattery as an ideal, this is the kind of destruction that we will endure. They flatter with their tongue. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. There's an association between death 
and flattery. There's an association between councils and failure. And I don't care if it's UN Security Council, the delegation of, you know, whatever super committee you put together. There's a Council of Foreign Relations. There's, like I mentioned, super committees, blue ribbon commissions, and panels of experts, cabinet members. There's, you know, majorities, opinion polls. We take such refuge in knowing what most people think. Well, what is this apart from God's declarative word? It is nothing. It's a council that will lead to failure. We will fall by councils like that unless they affirm with David that they are ill-equipped to handle their own affairs and cry out to them in gro- him in groaning and saying by their intentions and by their applications, give attention and sound to my cry, my king and my God, for to you do I pray. I don't pray to the councils of this world. I don't beseech what they have to say. I don't place my faith and their consensus. There's a connection between counsels and failure. There also, if you read deeper, there's a connection between transgressions and banishment, just like the Garden of Eden. Outside of the fellowship of God, as long as we entertain sin, there's also a connection between rebelling against God and bearing our own guilt. You see, in this section, there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destructive. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. And then this cry from David in his prayer for judgment says in verse 10, Make them bear their own guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsel because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. And there is no more fearful proposition that for those who have rebelled against God to bear their own guilt. Because the only just penalty remaining is hell itself. I could leave you there. And we could close on that really sober note. But since it's really heavy and David doesn't do that, we'll go back to the first column. Again, just to stir your faith and hopefully encourage you if you have not placed your faith in God's immutable word to do so this morning or to have your faith built if you've already done so, that His truths and precepts are the rallying cry for His will and for His people and the only heading under which to organize. Let's close with the rest of this passage under the heading again, God's allies who trust His word in verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. And very quickly, a list of connections, associations. There's a connection between security in the Lord and true joy and happiness. There's a connection between loving His name, loving His glory, and praiseworthy speech, between blessings and righteousness, between comprehensive safety and the favor of the Lord. I'm reminded in the footnotes of my Bible of the shields in antiquity that covered the warrior head to toe. And these shields provided for them really a comprehensive barrier between them and their adversary. And this, I believe, is a picture in verse 12. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with the shield. If the favor of the Lord has visited you, saint, if you place your faith in the blood of Christ to save you from your sins, then the judgment that's proclaimed for the second category in this sermon today will be as far from you as your sins are, as far as the east is from the west. And the crimson stain that's described in such in these Certain terms is washed away and your new clothes are white as snow. And again, as our familiar text in 2 Corinthians declares, Christ has become sin for you so that you might become the righteousness of God in Him. Bringing us back full circle to the beginning of this song where David says, In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Maybe the last connection we could draw is between That sacrifice which he makes in anticipation of the sacrifice that would come through his seed, Jesus Christ, and is the point of contact for his faith. And then all the way to the end of the psalm when he says, you cover him with favor as with a shield. So ultimate fulfillment 
The cross is the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate picture of the opening and closing of this psalm, which gives the saint great hope and a great refuge. Christ is the perfect and only sacrifice, securing, securing for the believer God's eternal favor. What hope we have in Him and what hope we have in His blood. And thank you, Lord, for your steadfast love. And if you want to know how much to appreciate that love, consider a psalm like this and remind yourself what the consequences are should you fall outside God's favor. They sound like death, destruction, suicide, abandonment, banishment, yea, even hell itself. But in Christ, there is eternal life, a future, and a hope. Rest for the wearied soul. A banqueting table with our Lord. A table spread with the marriage supper of the Lamb, as we prayed this morning. A wedding feast to look forward to. A welcoming groom. And we, the blood-washed bride, will step into His presence, perfectly holy and righteous, because of Christ's work on the cross. Let's close in prayer this morning. Father, it is my prayer for my own heart and for any other that needs it in this room that clarity would be brought to bear as to the value of your sacrifice and the horror of falling short of it. Your word says that we all, everyone, has fallen short of the glory of God. We all could be well described at points and times in our lives with this chapter, those who embrace flattery and boasting, bloodthirsty, proud, those who believe in lies and speak falsehoods, those who are deceitful. But Lord, for those of us who place our faith in Christ, we've come to our knees confessing that we are wicked, undeserving of your glory and presence, and dependent solely on your mercy and your blood for our salvation. Father, now equip us with discernment for this wicked world, Lord, to not judge ourselves because of what we've done as in a separate class, but instead, with great zeal and boldness, inspired by what you have done, preach as if others might come to the knowledge of truth. Testify as if you have bigger plans, Lord, in your redemptive work to welcome our family, our friends, maybe those who we come in contact with at work who believe in falsehood and lies and more, more likely to turn into CNN than the Word of God. Father, I pray that once again righteousness might be exalted in this land, Lord, exalting your name and be a great blessing for your people, but not at the expense of your glory, instead quite the opposite, that knees would be brought, Lord, to repentance and hearts would confess truth, and that in so doing, righteousness would be exalted and your word would become the reigning theme of first your church and secondly your kingdom in this world, called to be salt and light to a withered and dark society. Help us, Lord, in this huge call. It must be you speaking through us. Truly, we are weak, but in our weakness, you will perfect strength. Do that in us, Lord. And with this last song, we give you praise for what you've done and ask for your spirit to accompany us with conviction to keep on sharing it with others ever more so as the day approaches. In Jesus' name.